Welcome to the Weekly Standard Podcast. I'm your host, Michael Graham. With us from the Weekly Standard is Bill Crystal. And Bill, I have to ask the question of the day, are you now or have you ever been a llama? Let's watch that Islamophobia, Michael. <laughs> well, actually, that's your bad joke, not mine. I, that's okay. I'll, I'll take it. This podcast and- it, is, it is kind of frustrating that in a, when you look around the way the world is today with the director of intelligence saying more terrorism in 2014 than any year since they kept records, and many, many people, not just uh, him, but several saying that the level of the threat and the chatter is higher than 9-11. It really is disturbing that, America can be enthralled by a uh, South American quadruped and a dress. It is, and it's disturbing that we have a president, twice elected, who seems to spend more time uh, cheerfully um, taking advantage, I would say, of American's distractions, or at least of their, you know, uh, sort of getting them interested in various minute domestic policy initiatives, rather than explaining to the country the threats we face and what we should be doing about them. But he does spend a lot of time explaining the threat we face from Bibi Netanyahu, the democratically elected prime minister of a good friend of America, a little less concerned about the threats we face from some of these enemies we have. Uh, I thought it was interesting that uh, Elliot Abrams this week in the Weekly Standard said that he thinks it's a strategy, a political domestic strategy, to try to create space between Democratic voters and Israel. And he points to polls that show that while support for Israel remains at uh, traditional relatively highs, that the makeup of the supporters has changed and they become more Republican and less Democratic. I think the Democratic base, a large part of it, half of it maybe, is not very pro-Israel. I think President Obama isn't very pro-Israel, so he presumably thinks he's doing the right thing when he distances the U.S. from Israel. But I also think there's a very practical desire, a couple of practical desires here, which I think Elliot Abrams discusses in his piece as well. Uh, one is to defeat Netanyahu, if possible, in two weeks in the Israeli election. And, and Israeli voters do put a premium on good relations with the U.S., and Obama's doing his best to make those relations look bad. I think they're mostly bad relations with Obama, not with the U.S., but it could have, you know, it's not out of the question that it will... Uh, uh, move some swing voters over in Israel. He also de- is deeply invested, obviously, in this Iran deal he's desperately trying to negotiate. I think it was Ben Rhodes, his deputy national security advisor, who said a few months ago that for them, the Iran deal is in the second term, what Obamacare was in the, in the first term, that will be the signature achievement. And Prime Minister Netanyahu is coming over here to try to explain why it's a bad deal. And he has a certain amount of credibility on issues of, you know, what's uh, good and bad in the Middle East and and on terrorism and on Iran. And uh, I think they just don't want that message to be received well by uh, as many people as possible. or They want it to be received badly by as many people as possible uh, and ignored by as many people as possible. So they just did a pretty ruthless campaign, really, to undermine and discredit the Sanyahu. I think, ironically... They've called more attention, of course, to the speech than it would otherwise have had. Usually foreign leaders come and speak, even an Israeli prime minister, and it's not such a huge deal. Uh, here, he, they really made this speech a moment. It's interesting because uh, when I'm not with you, I'm on a news talk station. We have news in the mornings and, and talk in the middle of the day. And we are seriously considering carrying the speech here in Atlanta, Georgia, for a you know casual you know radio news audience because there's such a heightened uh, interest. Uh, knowing what you know about Prime Minister Netanyahu, do you think he rises to this occasion? Can he make a powerful case? You know, it's it's hard because the, the expectations are so high, and at the end of the day, he's going to, I think, make a pretty policy wonky speech about uh, why it's so, not just why it's important to stop Iran from getting nuclear weapons, but why this particular deal wouldn't stop them. And that requires getting into some details about breakout times and centrifuges. 
and so forth. And I, I think he'd be right to give that kind of speech. I don't think he should give a highly rhetorical speech, or, uh, emotional speech, or anything like that. But as a result, it may not be the most exci- quite as exciting as, as if he were speaking for seven minutes at a you know rally where he was really talking about the defense of the West. I think the the, the trick though is going to be to combine some of the the elevated rhetoric, because he is really speaking not just on behalf of Israel, but he is speaking in a way about the West and its uh, res- willingness to be resolved and stopping this uh, Islamist and uh, terror-sponsoring regime from getting nuclear weapons. So there has to be some of that kind of Churchillian rhetoric, but it's going to have to be combined with a pretty detailed exposition of why this deal, as it now looks, is going to be a very bad deal. What I'm trying to figure out is why supporters of Israel and opponents of a deal that lets Iran go nuclear aren't putting pressure on Democrats, particularly Senate Democrats, who are in states where many of their congressional districts, you know, that they also share, have gone Republican in 2010 and 2014, where there is support for Israel. And I see this across the board with the Republicans, Bill. The Democrats have demonstrably unpopular positions on things like immigration and uh, and support for Israel. And yet they seem to have no fear of political reprisals because Republicans don't make the case to inspire the voters to watch what their politicians are doing and, and hold them accountable. Look, I think you're right. I, I mean, the Republicans, I guess, are called the stupid party for a reason, but not just stupid, but sort of not very political. So on the immigration bill, I mean, there are these senators who said that what Obama did was wrong and they would uh, try to address it when they became, when they were reelected or when they were in the next term in the Senate. Now they're not letting the, the Senate address uh, Obama's executive order, and I don't know, is there any advertising up in the states which they represent? Is there any real pressure on them? I don't think so, really. I very much agree that the same could be done on Israel. Uh, the Emergency Committee for Israel, which I'm, uh, I guess, chairman of, uh, is going to have an ad up very, very soon. We'll link to it on the white on, on, on the website, uh, pointing out that Hillary Clinton, the likely Democratic presidential nominee, uh, hasn't said what her view is on this. I mean, there's, a, there's the Obama wing of the Democratic Party, which it's basically encouraged a boycott of the speech. It's pretty uh, anti-Netanyahu, and I would say fairly anti-Israel. Then there's a pro-Israel wing of the party. They make clear they're going to the speech, and, and that it's wrong to say the Republicans are more pro-Israel than Democrats. But where's Hillary on this? I think that's a real question that reporters uh, should be asking. I hope they will be asking after this adds up. I mean, she's in hiding, and she's not answering anything. But is that really, I mean, this is kind of a big moment. Everyone's kind of taking sides. Kind of amazing if the a Democratic presidential frontrunner can just duck it. But they can duck it if nobody's firing. You know, it's easy to, it's like the uh, bullets she dodged when she was in uh, Kosovo or, or, or Bosnia. When they're not there, they're easy to dodge. Republicans don't seem to be firing. And this week we saw the, we're seeing the culmination, for example, on the amnesty deal. When President Obama first announced his overreach, the polls showed the American people hated this. And yet throughout the entire conversation leading up until now, where are the Republican leaders making, reminding the voters, look, this is what we're trying to stop, something you really don't like. Here is the outcome. And the Weekly Standard, a great blog post about the fact that the earned income tax credit could result in some people who've been here working illegally and evading their taxes getting a windfall of tens of thousands of dollars when they finally get this documentation and file for back taxes they never paid. I mean, those are things that could work. I don't see a voice for this fight in the CPAC speakers, and I certainly don't see it uh, with the leadership in the Congress. No, I think with leadership in the Congress, don't you think really how should I put it, the failure to fight effectively, the failure to make the case, that's not a bug 
uh, right. their effort. That's a feature. They they kind of expect it to lose. They kind of want to lose. They want to put up a token fight and then get this issue out of the way. Either they agree with Obama to some degree uh, substantively, or they don't think it's a good fight to have politically. But these are guys who spend an awful lot of time explaining to themselves why every fight is not a good fight to have politically. Exactly. I think they don't see the virtues of just fighting. I mean, you're not going to win everything, but you've got to make your case, and you never know what issue is going to take off. That's the one thing I've learned over the years in politics. You, you don't want to pick fights gratuitously, and you don't want to be a kind of a jerk about it, but you want to fight for what you believe in because you don't know quite where you'll hit uh, a vein of public sentiment and something will become much bigger. It could be illegal immigration or it could be llamas. You never know. There you go. Back to the llamas here. You know. <laughs> uh, so uh, CPAC goes apace. Uh, speeches are being given. That's the usual thing. I, 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 I'm one of those people, Bill, I under, I'm underwhelmed by the actual impact of CPAC. I can't re- you know, recall in the recent election cycles where it really turned something around for anybody. But it's good to kind of let people dust off their stump speeches and, and, uh, and uh, work the crowd a bit. Yeah, I, I do think it's interesting. Walker, Governor Walker's speech in Iowa a couple of weeks ago, three weeks ago, or so it seems to really hit a nerve or sort of reminded people why, at least in theory, they would like a candidate like Scott Walker. And then he gave a pretty good speech, and suddenly he's in the lead in the Iowa polls and doing pretty well nationally. I don't know if anyone will get a bounce like that. I don't see back these bounces at this stage. Are you know people are very soft in their preferences, very undecided in their preferences, really, and so. They, you know, you, they, the bounce can go away pretty quickly, but it's not bad for them to get some, as you say, dust off their uh, their speeches and test some lines. I think Jeb Bush will be kind of interesting. I mean, he's speaking to a conservative audience. He doesn't want to. He shouldn't just pander. That won't work very well. But can he make a compelling case to conservatives about why he would be the best conservative nominee or the or the best electable conservative nominee? To use the old Bill Buckley rule. Uh, for the Republican Party, and does he even try to? Does he sort of have an, attempt, uh, an attitude of condescension to the conservatives, or, or just kind of ignoring them, and they'll have to suck it up because he's going to have a hundred million dollars, and no one else will have, you know, one quarter of that? I mean, you do get that attitude a little bit from the Bush people, and I'm very—I think he will be the interesting, you know, take the, the response to him and how he just handles the situation might be the most interesting thing to come out of CPAC. Well, you know, Republicans have a uh, tradition now of, of nominating people to be the Republican nominee who doesn't like Republicans, John McCain being the most glaring example of that. I mean, he, he was never happier than when he was beating the crap out of his fellow Republicans in the New York Times. I just wonder if Jeb Bush can rise above that because it's clear from his public statements he's not happy about being a Republican. Yeah, and, he, and he's uh, not happy about being a conservative, which is maybe even more damaging. Now, he was once. That's what's sort of mysterious. I, right. I don't really recall much of this when he was governor of Florida. Uh, he was pretty conservative. On the issues where he wasn't, he would explain, well, I have a slight difference on this. But something has happened in his years uh, since he was in office, and um, I don't think it's really been for the good. Now, he could fix it. He's an impressive guy. But I'm not. you're right. Does he even know? He, does he even want to fix it? Does he think he should fix it? Um, I'm a little questionable, doubtful about that. I do think it shows, though, I mean, why there's such an interest in Walker and conceivably in others. I think Rubio gave a good speech today, uh, as well as those people being younger and fresher, uh, but also just seeming to be happy, cheerful warrior, warriors on behalf of the conservative message. Jeb Bush says over and over again he wants to be cheerful, he wants to be optimistic, but then he doesn't seem very cheerful about his own party or his own movement. Well, he's optimistic about everything except the Republicans. And he's, if, you know, I, I forget who said it today, but if, if it were a Clinton-Bush ticket, would it be that surprising for the rest of us? And my no, answer that's is... A very good. It's a very good line. At what, what difference at this point, really, would it make, Bill? There you 
go. That's a good line. <laughs> I mean, it's, that's why I can't. I cannot really abide the thought. I've got to just say, I say, of a of a Clinton Bush race, just because really for that simple reason. I mean, really, that's what it's come to. We're just replaying twenty four years ago. But uh, but uh, you know, I can I can complain all I want, but someone's got to beat Bush, or and or someone's got to get in and beat Clinton. The the absence of opposition to Clinton is almost more mystifying. I mean, she's not that strong, really, but. But, boy, no one seems to want to step up against her. Well, it's the uh, the flip-flop of the usual fortunes, where you have the Democrats falling in line instead of falling in love with the uh, Clinton machine, and you have the Republicans out having a scramble looking for who's going to excite them. One last thing about uh, where we are. You mentioned Hillary Clinton. I think we really need to mention what it says that the almost certain nominee of the Democratic Party was a person who accepted millions of dollars not just from foreign governments, but from Islamist and Muslim uh, or terror, I should say, uh, governments that have supported groups that have gone on to commit terror while she was secretary of state. I mean, if she were Republican, not only would her political career be over, but she might be forcing facing some hearings before Congress or criminal actions or something. To me, this is so devastating. And I just wonder if I'm the only person who feels that way. No, I think it is, and I combined uh, with the speeches for a quarter million bucks a pop. I mean, she seems to think the rules don't apply to her. Maybe she'll be proven right, you know, the way they don't apply to some Latin American uh, dictator. But I, I kind of think we're still a republic, and the rules should apply. One of Bill Clinton's best lines was always, you know, let's let's do more, let's help reward the people who do their best and play by the rules. Hillary Clinton thinks she can get away with not playing by the rules. Let's see if the Democratic primary electorate is quite as... Um, uh, intimidated and, and compliant as she thinks. I, I really, I was on ABC last Sunday, you know, this week we had this little discussion about this too. And I, I, I said, I asked actually, it was a genuine question, well, what would the Clinton, you know, what would they say in, in, in answer? How can they defend this, uh, the $250,000 of speech she was about to give a speech, which she has given this week? Well, you know, right in 2015, this isn't 2013 anymore. And uh, the New York Times reporter on the panel with me, Amy Chosick, said, well, uh, it, it, it's expensive. They would say that it's expensive to be a Clinton, mm-hmm. and I really wonder if that can be sustained in a in, a, in an actual election campaign. That attitude, and I wonder, and I, I keep coming back to the Democratic primary. I just think someone is going to end up giving her more of a run than people now think. Uh, but you talk to the Washington inside. You're, you're one of those inside the Beltway pundits, Bill Crystal. What do? Uh, Democrats and Clinton defenders say when you say she was Secretary of State and she took money from Algeria. What what do they say? Oh, come on. You know she wasn't influenced by anything. She's a long-standing public servant. And, what? You know, the husband's a little out of control. The foundation took this money, but it had no influence on anything. And it, frankly, it's a little bit unseemly, Michael, if you'd even raise this issue. <laughs> that's, what they would, that's what they would say. You're kidding. <laughs> oh, that's just uh, that, that's, uh, there's a lot of that going around in Washington. Well, I, I, you know, maybe this is the cycle where hubris is a winning strategy. But if it is, it, it'll be the first time in my lifetime. Bill Crystal, thanks so much for joining us. We appreciate it. Hey, thanks, Michael. You've been listening to the Weekly Standard podcast. Please be sure to check WeeklyStandard.com regularly for podcast updates. I'm your host, Michael Grant.